Uh, my name is Kent. I don't always introduce myself. Sometimes I do. I used to do it all the time, but I, you know, at this point. Uh, but if you're new here, if I haven't met you, uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and would love to meet you. So this is uh, one of my favorite things to uh, teach because I, I, I guess a number of reasons. I found this very impactful for me uh, the first time this was taught to me, and I was like, wow, this is, I feel like, really mind-blowing. Maybe not mind-blowing, but at least just like it helped give language to things that I myself was wrestling with at the time. Uh, but also, this is, I think, a very foundational teaching for the culture of our church. So if you have been here since COVID, uh, you've already, I think, heard this teaching two times. Um, and if you've been here since uh, COVID and you haven't heard this teaching, how dare you? I work on these. Um, work hard. And uh, you don't even get the podcast. Well, fine. Uh, but no, it's fine. Either way, I want to come back to this teaching regularly because not just, you know, need a week off of prepping, but because this is, again, I think part of who we are as a culture. Also, if you've been to Soma DNA recently, we've also worked this into our Soma DNA class because of this idea of it being so foundational to who we are. And just to bring up a why or how this connects to us, uh, we're going to just really quickly look at our mission statement, vision statement. I'm not sure which one. I don't really know the difference between the two, and somebody who knows business can probably describe it to me. But regardless, this is one of the two. And uh, if you have been here, I hope you at least have heard this before. So we are a Christ-led family being formed into the image of Jesus in community to build the kingdom of God in our community. And this focus is primarily of what does it look like to be formed into the image of Jesus in community. Because this is a part of a larger series that we've been going through called The Gift of Obedience, which is a spiritual formation teaching in which we have been trying to relook at the story of our culture believing what obedience is, dry, dead, confining, uh, a break of an authenticity, and you know, last week I think I said, and I think this is a really good idea, like a Malcolm Gladwell revisionist history episode. We want to look at it and be like, is that actually the story that the world believes, or is the, world that, the story that the world believes actually accurate to what is true of our humanity? And in this series, we've been staying relatively high level, and I promised this week that we would actually get a little bit more into the practicals, and that's true, because last week we talked about uh, looking at the entire uh, history of the kings of, of Israel and Judea and First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and we talked about the power of obedience. And the power of obedience, uh, I mean, just re-highlighting things, there's four things we want to highlight. One thing is that uh, consequences are real, and they are not absolved by the forgiveness and grace of God. And that's not like to like be really heavy. That's just merely to talk about the reality is that when you become a follower of Jesus and all of your sin, all of your sin, the past, present, and the future sin, go on the cross. And is therefore as far from you as the East is from the West, that is completely true about the record of your sin. Now, the consequences of your sin are still real. And a lot of us, I think, want to have a place where, like, okay, the gospel means I'm free from sin, therefore I'm free from the consequence of my sin. And all of life will tell you, and all of Scripture will tell you, no, like, regularly throughout the kings, the kings are going to sometimes 
do wicked in the sight of the Lord. Sometimes they're going to do good in the sight of the Lord, but at one point do wicked in the sight of the Lord, and God will show up and be like, hey, this is going to have weight. This is going to fall eventually. I use the, the metaphor of gravity. Like if you toss up wickedness into the air, it eventually has to come down. And there's sometimes where kings would like, you know, repent and they put on sackcloth and ashes and, and God would say like, hey, this isn't going to come down in your lifetime. I'm going to give you the mercy of delaying it, but it will come down eventually. It's going to come down in your son's lifetime. And so, again, this isn't just a, like fear monger as much as it's just to say there is a level to obedience that we kind of want to like as Christians sometimes like, well, hey, we're forgiven by grace and that's really awesome news. Uh, but then what does obedience really matter? Well, one thing is that if you say this several times and we'll continue to say it several times, if you sow a field of chaos, you will reap chaos. Forgiven or not, you still have to deal with the person who built their house on sand and the storm comes, and it will smash. And so it is wise for us to invest in the idea of, okay, how do we live into obedience, not to earn our salvation, but to simply build our house on a rock. And then we looked at, there's actually a ton of power to obedience. Uh, all throughout the kings, it's going to say for the kings of Judea, hey, you guys are really wicked, you're really messing up, but I'm going to continue to have some level of sticking with you, God says to them, because David, my servant, was obedient to me. And you see, actually, the obedience of David tends to outweigh the disobedience of king after king after king after king, 10 of them, you'll see, throughout Judea. And then also, the good news to counter the reality of consequences are real is that it is never too late to begin acting in obedience. And you see that in the kings, you see that in some of the most wicked ones, particularly Manasseh, who is said to be the most wicked king of all of Judea. He institutes child sacrifice as a way of worship, and that's the point where God says, like, this is eventually going to just fall apart, like, this is over, and the exile is coming. And even other kings try to redo it. Josiah tries to, like, undo it, but while God blesses Josiah's efforts, he says, no, like, Manasseh's wickedness will have an effect, and it is going to lead in Babylon coming in here. But then it says in Chronicles that Manasseh cries out in the midst of being captured on hooks in a dungeon, and he cries out to God, and he humbles himself. And the worst king of all Judea's history, it says God sees him, and he says, hey, I am now going to keep the fall of your people until a later generation. Because he looks on him and he says like, hey, your repentance, I still hear it. Your step into obedience still matters. This is, I think, really, this teaching is, is set up well not only by what we read in Mark, but also if you know Scripture enough, you know that this is actually based off of the Shema. The Shema is Deuteronomy 6, uh, 4 through 9, though we're going to read the context of 1 through 9, and it is entitled the Shema because the first word, listen, uh, in verse 4 is the word Shema, and that's actually how you reference in uh, Hebrew Scripture. Uh, we always reference, we're very, you know, like logical and, and rational culture, and so we reference by numbers, like we put numbers uh, next to like, hey, what chapter and what verse? 
In an oral culture, they just merely referenced by the first word. How did you reference a scripture? You just started saying the first sentence, and then everyone just clicked over because they'd all worked to memorize at least the Torah. And so the Shema, you just simply say the first word, and it brings up uh, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, and that Shema, O Israel. But again, backing up to verse 1, it says this, Now this is the commandment, that statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, me being Moses, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all the statutes of his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that you, uh, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Now, this is the question that comes up in Mark 4 with one of the scribes coming up and being like, hey, it says like, hey, obey everything and it's going to go well for you. But what's the most important one? And Jesus is going to quote them Shema, which follows exactly after this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. In the book of Mark, he's going to add with all your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. To step into what it is to practically obey is fundamentally tied up in this idea of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then Jesus is going to go on and say, the the next is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. There's some rabbi, I forget which one, one of the more famous ones that was one time asked, you know, to say the entire law standing on one foot, and he like stands up on one foot, and he says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. All the rest is commentary. But if you know the history that we just went over last week, they don't do it. And there's this regular depiction, the other thing that we focused on last week, which is that you must have the Holy Spirit in order to be actually be able to obey. That this obedience doesn't come by you eventually snapping your wrist a m- number of times with a rubber band until you finally have a Pavlovian response to sin is bad and it hurts. Because at the end of the day, all that's going to produce is the pharisaical response of legalism. In fact, Jesus spoke to this, uh, where was it? In Matthew 23, 25 through 26, he said, hey, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. And so, this reality of like, hey, we have to have obedience, not just come out of will, but coming out of an integration of our heart and our soul to actually want to do these things, is where a lot of us are just like, this is, this is where formation obedience is really hard, because I can't control those things. And you're right, you can't. 
the Spirit of God, that's why we're calling this series the gift of obedience for two reasons. One, to actually look at it, the idea of that get, obedience is, actually is a blessing. And the walking, that, that God shows you the law, not to give you a standard to be like, can you just keep it and can you jump a little bit higher, but rather saying like, no, there's a way that reality was designed, and when you live congruent with it, life will go well. That's the entire book of Proverbs. Hey, if you do wisdom, it's going to generally work out for you. Now, as I've said before, it has to be paired with the book of Ecclesiastes. Those two are like two sides of the same coin, and Ecclesiastes is going to say like, hey, if Proverbs is A plus B equals C, Ecclesiastes is A plus B equals everyone dies eventually, and sometimes <laughs> randomly. And you hold both of those things in tension. But Proverbs reality is real. A plus B, more times than not, does equal C. If you sow a field of wisdom, you reap a field of blessing and joy. And so, Let's talk to the how you actually do this. And to do this, Kayla, if you can go ahead and grab um, the whiteboard. I have a whiteboard today, um, which is fun. And I know. Uh, and again, I've done this before. I drew it before. Um, but I'm going to do it again. Um, so. This, uh, as it gets wheeled out here, yeah, here, let me uh, grab and help you. Yeah, there we are. So uh, this is now what many, uh, I and others of you have begun to refer to as um, the pokeball of salvation. <laughs> and, uh, but what it's meant to be is actually a depiction of your whole self. Now. Don't ask why your whole self is a little elongated and not like a perfect circle, because some people worked a long time. In fact, the biggest part of my study on Friday was just trying to draw this stinking circle. And uh, this is like the, I don't know, the, the, the gamma version. Um, either way, this is meant to uh, represent you and your whole personhood. And drawing from what we talked about in Mark and also the Shema, we're talking about uh, your soul, your heart, your head and your strength or your will. And if this is you, uh, your head, heart, and will being integrated into yourself by your soul, uh, what you and I typically do is we bifurcate ourselves into two versions of ourself. Uh, so you have this dotted line that's going to go straight through the soul, and it's going to bifurcate the most of the heart and the will and it's going to present the head and little heart, little will. And what this represents is two sides of the self. On the top, this is going to be the ideal self. This is your Facebook profile picture. Down here is going to be, we'll call it the shadow self. You might call it the real self. However, I'd argue that the real self is actually the entire thing without the line. But still, the shadow self for that use, and I hope that's not too pop psychology language, it's just words. They just help describe a concept. And so uh, under here, um, this is you getting woken out of a dead sleep at 3 a.m. and whatever comes out. And the reason that we split it, and we split it right here, is because I can control what goes into my mind, what I think on, 
not wholly and completely, but a little of that is because my heart has desires that I have trouble controlling. But really, when I think about it, I can put the inputs into my head and into my thinking, and I can control that. I can't control whatever is underneath this line. This line is just the reality of who I've been formed to be. Because formation is always happening. It is always happening. You are being formed by the fact that you showed up today, that you just walked in, not just because this is a uh, place where you're receiving teaching and singing. It's being formed just by your getting up on a Sunday, just by you having it built into your schedule. You are formed by the job that you have. You're being formed by the family that you have. Of course, your family of origin is really huge in your formation. Uh, it, it is on a limbic level. All the study that we have, Whatever, wherever you take in your news is forming you at a limbic level. If you have a coffee habit, if you have lack thereof a coffee habit, that caffeinated like buzz actually gets into your limbic system and it just becomes part of who you are. And so everything is being formed. Now, most of us are being formed in completely unintentional ways. We just are just, you go through life and you don't really think about like the idea of like what inputs are going in and therefore what is coming out of the part of my soul that I cannot control. And in the ideal in the shadow, we present this side to the world because this side is scary to us. And this side, I've got to really trust you to even give you a glimpse of what's going on here. Half the time, I'm not really all that aware of it myself. You can spend years in counseling just to try to get sneak peeks into what's going on down here. And so, because this is the side that I'm aware of, I can control, here's how spiritual formation tends to go for you and me. Uh, we tend to receive something into our head. Possibly, uh, let's just say, uh, a teaching. Um, how about a TED talk? Yeah, okay. Oh, that's TED. Uh, there we go. Talk. Uh, you know, even music to a certain extent, like some people will be like, oh, that's how I awaken my soul. But reality, music is you're singing it, you're taking in the, yes, you're recognizing the beauty of the creation of music, but still, you're like, you're singing lyrics. And these things enter into your mind, and they enter and they, they confront lies, and they give you a level of truth. Like, holy cow, there's a truth that I'm hearing. Uh, I am loved by God, and that my past, present, future sin is taken care of on the cross. God's not waiting for a future version of me to hang out with that he actually likes. He loves me as I am in this moment. Holy cow, that confronts the lie that I need to do better, work harder, because God is really kind of disappointed in me. And so as I hear that lie, it stirs up affections in my head, and I'm then told, so therefore, trust God. Have faith. Don't take life into your own hands. Experience a relinquishing of your will. And so I'm like, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. So I cook it over to my will. I've got a truth. It's really awesome. It's really moving in my life. I kick that over to my will. And then my will, at least a part of my will, I now push that will out into the world. And this is who I am. 
And then some small period of time passes, hour, day, week, and you are out of gas. And so what you do is you say, okay, wait a second, I need to now go and put another input into my head. I need to receive another teaching. I need to find another song. I need to find another book. I need to find something else that really stirs up my affections and really stirs up my will because now I can kick this back over to my will and I can produce for a little bit more. And then that dies. And then you begin to put input after input after input after input after input in order to produce an output of the will until eventually this just burns out. And you start asking yourselves questions like, What's going on with my soul? Like, this truths of God that once really stirred me effortlessly now have seemingly no effect. And I'm like losing the joy of my salvation. And I just want to be returning to this point where I had the good amount of zeal. Sound familiar? And so, the problem is, is your formation has dealt with head and a little bit of the will. But the reason I can't get that will to stick is because most of the will is connected to the portion that I cannot control and is connected to the entirety of my heart. And so therefore, this has only touched part of my soul, part of my heart, part of my will, all of my head. And what we fail to do is take teaching that enters into the head. That's actually not the wrong, that's not the wrong place to start. You started in the right place. You started in the necessary place. Take teaching, again, uh, small group discussion, uh, self-awareness of who you are, all these things. Enter in, good stuff. But what we fail to do is then drop them into your heart. And again, part of that is because you can't control that. Because I said that to you, like, okay, you receive a truth in your head, and then you just need to drop it into your heart. And so then you just go all week and be like, how do I drop it into my heart? I'm like, I'm just going to drop this. I'm dropping it into my heart right now. I imagine it dropping into my heart. I feel it dropping into my heart. It's warming. It's like the Grinch, and it's growing my heart, uh, I think. At least I'm trying to do that. Um, okay, now I'm ready to do it my, with my will. Um, and that doesn't work. The way that you drop truth into your heart is that you experience it to be true. So I can know something to be true, but on my nervous system level, I don't experience it to be true. A metaphor I've used in the past is that in my childhood home, pulling into the garage used to have a bump of like just a little, you know, the, the concrete and the garage just didn't fully meet. And so as you pulled in, you just have a bump. And since leaving my childhood home, my parents said, no more. We will smooth out the bump. And the bump now has gone to be with the Lord. And now when I drive into the garage, I've not been there a lot. Uh, and so when I do, I still feel my body tense to receive just that small bump. Like it's just not much, but I just like prepare my body to just intrinsically, I'm going over this part of the threshold of the garage, I need to just absorb something. And nothing comes. Now my parents don't do that anymore because they still live there and they have gone over again and again and again because I know something to be true. There's no bump there anymore. I can get out, I can look at it, I can put it into my head, I can memorize it, I can memorize, you know, uh, Kent's rules for uh, 316. No bump exists in the garage anymore 
and I can like make that my verse of the year, my life verse. But yet, when I go in a car and then go over the threshold, my nervous system clenches. Because it takes time, like it has for my parents, to not just know that is true, but to experience it to be true. So how you take truth and go from your head into your heart is, again, something you cannot control at all. That is to experience that truth to be real. This... Yeah, let, let me come back to how this actually works here in a second. So then uh, the next portion of if I'm going to now experience this to be true, and we'll come back to what that actually looks like, uh, it hit, enters my head. Truth gets confronted, or my lies that I believe and that I've been living out of get confronted with truth. I then over time experience it to be uh, real. We'll come back to that. And then what happens is it's going to then kick from your experience into your soul, and then it becomes a lifelong process of just doing this of this truth that you know and experience to be real integrating into your life via your soul. And after a lifetime of this, and throughout your life, you can begin to have things come from your will that are integrated into who you are. You're not obeying because you know you should. You're obeying because you've become someone who would obey the things that God has taught because it's just who you are. So let's, let's work through this process with like a couple real-life examples, just to kind of get a little bit more handles on this. Um, here's the truth. I am made in the image of God. I am a child of God. I'm intrinsically loved. I'm intrinsically valuable. I know that to be true. My experience is if I don't produce, people won't love me. If my body image is what it is, that's really what I feel my value is. I better keep on chopping wood, and it doesn't matter how many quarters I've killed it, this quarter is a fresh start, and I gotta kill it all over again. That's my experience of what it is to just the truth. So that confronts that lie. Awesome. But then has no real grip because I have to, over time, over a lifetime, things like this have to happen. I completely fail. Like I fail with my job, I fail with my relationships, I fail with whatever it is. And then, yes, I hold on to the fact like Jesus still loves me, but still, that's more of a head reality. And how I experience it is that people who know me and love me don't push away and leave me, but rather they come near to me in my vulnerability, near to me in my failure, and they communicate both with their presence and with their words and with their relationship this doesn't define you. This is not who you are. You are worthy to, of being loved, not because you succeeded. You're worthy in your failure. 
And that's just one drop in a whole ocean of, I better produce, I better produce, I better produce, I better produce, because that's been most of my experience and most of your experience till now. But it's a drop. And it begins the process. And slowly but surely, these drops go in again and 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 again for the long process of integrating into who you are until over a lifelong of living in community and having people come near to me and me coming near to them in the midst of their failure and me experiencing and giving what I've experienced, I eventually become a person who it just makes sense that my will begins to act as if I am loved, not by what I do, but because I am a child of God, made in His will, and I am loved not only by Him, but by the people who He has formed around me, His church, His body. Example two. Um, I have nothing to fear. No matter what my external circumstances are, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. I have no need to fear any situation. I have no need to provide for myself. I am under the care of a good shepherd. If you've been to church at all, you know that's true. But you have no ability to work that out into your will when tragedy, chaos happens. And so, you begin to Attempt over time to experience it. And a lot of, here's the theme of a lot of this. This happens in community. This happens by the body of Christ being the hands and the feet to actually exhibit the love of God to you. You can't do this on your own. Now, some of them are going to come outside of community. I can have a time where like, oh my gosh, I'm freaking out. I feel like, you know, my life is chaotic. This thing happened that I didn't expect. And all of a sudden, I pray and through miraculous means, God provides for me. And it's like a moment of the drop in the bucket of like, holy cow, this actually is true. I actually can live this to be true. But so much of it, the way that he's designed it to work is so that you have to be a part of the body so that the body is the one who is doing this with you and for you and you are doing this for and with. That's why all the epistles are about love one another, bear one another's burdens, put up with one another, be patient with one another, move near one another in each other's vulnerability. That's a paraphrase, but more or less that's what's going on. And so I am freaking out because something happened, but then... Miraculous means through prayer or miraculous provisions. I mean, you could call it every bit more miraculous. I live in a community of people who sacrifice of themselves in order to provide for me. Real life example. Father's Day of this year. I ride my bike as transportation, and uh, I ride it on Sundays. Normally, I bring it in the building. Father's Day, running late. I'm going to lock it up outside. I don't normally do this. It's fine. But it's not fine. Because <laughs> I come out, and Father's Day gift, 2023, stolen bike. I have the worst Father's Day. Uh, like, I'm just in my head the whole time. We'd already told the kids we were going out to breakfast, and I wish we had enough, because I just wanted to be like, I don't want to. I just want to abort. I don't want to go spend money after I've lost money from a bike 
And it doesn't matter, we told them, so we're there, and I'm like sitting, like trying not to be depressed and wild eggs. And I get home and I'm like, like Sharon's like, what do you want to do? I'm like, I just want to take a nap right now. I'm really like, this is affecting me more than it should, but this is affecting me a ton. And I, week goes on. I drive here on a Tuesday. The whole staff team is like, why are you driving here? On a, like, ever. And it's like, yeah, my bike got stolen. And either way, time continues to move on. And then it's the month of June. Uh, it's when Father's Day happens, as is my birthday, about a week later. And a number of us go and connect together and go for a birthday, and it's delivered to me that the people of the church have crowdsourced and pooled money together to get me a new bike, one that was way more expensive than my old bike. And also a lock that like has like insurance on the lock, like it'll give you like $3,000 if they break the lock. However, that lock also is like, could legit be a, a murder weapon. Like, uh, I mean, I take, I'm taking that with me wherever I go. If I'm, if I'm nervous about my bike, I'm not locking my bike up with that. I'm taking that to hit people in the place that I am. And uh, I'll use another lock and then I'll use that for myself. And, and so, this, puts me in a place where I now receive a tangible expression that God has me. He is near to me. Yes, through provision, not necessarily miraculously, my bike just shows back up, but through the body. This also is my way, by the way, of I don't know who all of you who were who contributed to that. I asked many people, how do I say thank you for this? Everyone was just like, just enjoy it and write it, and that's the way you say thank you. So this is also just my way of saying thank you to whoever you are, to all of who you are. Because it really was powerful for me. It was something that affected me in a level that it was recognizing that not only am I not alone because my Father cares for me and knows me. I'm not alone in the fundamental reality that I believe that everyone will leave me eventually. And so thank you. And so as that begins to work into my will over time and over years and integrates into who I am, I over time become a person who the natural normal response becomes someone to say, holy cow, I didn't see this coming, but it's okay. I have a good shepherd. I'm under the control of another. I have the provision of another. And even if he doesn't provide in the way that I think he's going to provide right now, I'm good. This is foundational to who we are as a church because this is how we want to design our church to be. Meaning, 
our main strategy for achieving this is not this moment. Teaching is wonderful. It does very little to transform you over a lifetime. It does do a part. It does do entering truth to confront lies. Very necessary. It's necessary to hold on to it, to read it, to experience it, to memorize it. All of those things, completely necessary part of the process. But you have grown frustrated because you have not continued the process. You've skipped it over to here, and it's burning out on you. Because if you just do teaching, I need more teaching. As we pointed out regularly, we are the most informed generation of all time. You have all, all of the teaching in going on in most of the American and much of the global church is going to be available for download at some point this week for you that's happening right now and all the other time zones. We are the most informed generation of all time. We are not the most transformed generation of all time. Information does not equal transformation. It is a part of the process, but it does not equal transformation. And so our main strategy is not coming together and creating content for you to receive and then produce into your will. Here's the content, here's the application. Here's more content, here's more application. But rather, our main focus is over a long game relationship level, being a Christ-led family who's being formed in the image of Jesus in community in order to build the kingdom of God in our community. And so church is great, but I intentionally always refer to this as the gathering. This isn't a service. It's not church. This is the gathering of the body of the church. This building I always refer to as the building or the Soma building or whatever it is. This is not the church. The church gathers here to live life, to fellowship, to disciple one another, and to love our community by inviting them in and also moving out from here. But this is not church. Church happens, yes, on Sunday. And then Monday and Tuesday. And Wednesday and Thursday. And then you get Friday off. But then Saturday again. And so we are trying to form ourselves in a way that we are actually living this life and are actually creating places, whether they be in your mission community, whether they be in your discipleship group, or whether they're in relationships that have never been branded by a title that we have given it. We don't care. We don't care if you don't even come on Sundays regularly, but you're a part of the community. We actually have members of our church that um, just have gotten married and their spouse went to another church and so now they attend their other church with their spouse. How dare you? And, uh, but regardless, they do that. I'm really kidding about that. And so they do that, and, but they're still a part of like a missional community. They're still part of a discipleship group, or they're just a part of like life. And so I asked them, do you still want to be a member? Because I feel like you're still a part of the family here. Some say, well, I'm going to become a member over here. Totally fine. But some are like, yeah, makes sense. I'll be a member here too. 
or I'll be a member here as just a part of being in the family. Because Sunday attendance is not really the goal. Being formed in the image of Jesus with teaching and having things enter into our mind in this context, but in several others, yes. But not then just going teaching the will, teaching the will, teaching the will, but it letting me something that actually integrates into who I am. So I become someone who simply lives like the kingdom is here because I've experienced it to be here. Ending with this concept. I remember someone once telling me, you cannot teach anyone grace. You can only show it to them. And it's true. You have not been taught grace. You have been told grace. That sounds cool. But you have not actually received grace until you, by definition, did not deserve it. And so it is only, I mean, we tell this with, with premarital all the time. You can only learn the fact that you love one another over showing each other grace and love and mercy and moving near one another in your vulnerability rather than away over a whole lifetime. That's what forms oneness. And that's true in marriage, that's true in the body. And so we are trying to develop a time and a space and a family in which we don't teach each other grace. We have capacity to know one another well enough and offend one another deep enough that we might show it to one another. And so, a way that we participate in the body together is by taking of the communal meal. The communal meal that is the rehearsal of grace that I have been forgiven and cleansed of my sin and empowered by the Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead to now become someone who does not know truth and does it until I need to know more and do more, but is bodies it because it has been experienced and integrated into who I am. And so some of the simple ways we do that is just coming here together, receiving of a common loaf, tearing it off and dipping it into a common cup. And if you're like me, uh, you don't have to, but I've just found it helpful, a helpful practice to me that when they when whoever is, says that, like, you know, hey, body of Christ broken for you, I look at them and I say, also for you. And then dipping in the cup, they say, blood of Christ shed for you. And I say, and also for you. Don't have to. Not required. It's just helpful for me. As well as I want to have that experience in community of just, in a small way, speaking that over them, having it spoken over me. And so... We invite you to come if you are a believer, if you are a follower of Jesus. Come forward, take of the cup, take of the bread. Uh, you can return on the side aisles and come down the center aisles. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for us to learn obedience not as 
a heavy yoke, but as a light one because it simply becomes life and life to the full. And why would we not be someone who wants to live into these realities that not only do we know to be true, but we experience to be true? And so, Lord, I pray for this long game of obedience to begin the compound interest of starting in our soul now and having again in the, with the brothers and sisters in this body and the larger church in our city and in our world, loving one another again and again and again so that we might be like those who follow your new commandment, that all will know we are your disciples by the way in which we love one another until we all bound together by the spirit of unity grow up into full maturity becoming the body mature connected to the head that is Christ I pray that in Jesus name amen <laughs>